Chapter 4 Without Knowledge or Consent I can hypnotize a man without knowledge or consent into committing treason against the United States, boasted Dr. George Estabrooks in the early 1940s. Estabrooks, chairman of the Department of Psychology at Colgate University, was called to Washington by the War Department shortly after Pearl Harbor. Since he was the ranking authority on hypnosis at the time, they wanted his opinion on how the enemy might be planning to use hypnotism. 200 trained foreign operators working in the United States, Estabrooks told the military leaders, quote, could develop a uniquely dangerous army of hypnotically controlled six columnists. At the time, only a handful of men knew the government's experiments with hypnosis for the purpose of controlling minds in the interest of national security. In a decade, there had been no concentrated assassination of presidents, candidates, or civil rights leaders. There had not been Watergate nor any disclosures of government agencies invading the privacy of the United States citizens. The CIA had not yet been conceived, and even its parent, the Office of Strategic Services, did not exist. It was unthinkable at the time that an agency of the U.S. government would employ mind control techniques on its own people. Therefore, it was natural for George Estabrooks to believe that if Americans were threatened by hypnotic mind control, the threat would be posed by a foreign enemy working within the United States. So, in 1943, Estabrooks sounded his public alarm and planted the seed for what would become priority top-secret research for the next 25 years. Couching his disclosure in hypnotic terms and saying that the hypnotized mind could be put to military use, he then portrayed a sense which he said could be very easily take place. It would be possible, he said, for the enemy to plan a foreign agent as a doctor in a hospital or his own office. This supposed doctor could, by means of fake physical examination, place thousands of people under his power over a period of time. Esbrooks projected how, by hypnotizing key officers and programming them to follow suggestion, this masked maneuver could enable a lowly first lieutenant to take over the reins of the entire U.S. Army. 
His alternative scenario depicted the general staff summoning a colonel from the intelligence to an emergency meeting in the Pentagon two days after an outbreak of war. Shortly after entering the room where Pentagon brain trusters were gathered, the colonel is put into a hypnotic trance by an army psychologist and told there has been a major change of plans for the defense of major territory. The details of the plan have to be conveyed in absolute secrecy to the specific command. Since the enemy has been very successful in monitoring U.S. communications, a new highly reliable procedure is needed to sift the message past the enemy. The colonel, under the influence of hypnosis, will carry the top secret message. When you wake up, the hypnotized colonel is told, you will no longer have the slightest knowledge of the secret information carried in the lower layers of your mind. The colonel is then given instructions to proceed by airplane to Honolulu. He is told that in the normal waking state he will hold the impression that he is on a routine mission and must report after his arrival to General Y. He is the only man in the world who can hypnotize you again. Put to sleep by General Y, and only him, you will correctly recall all the details of his conversations and disclose the secret instructions we have just given you. Estbrook said later, he had given that Pentagon episode only as a practical example of how the new science of hypnotism could be used for military purposes. Going even further with his alarming predictions, Estabrooks told how disguised techniques of hypnosis could be employed to create an entire army of saboteurs within our own country. Let us suppose that in a certain city there lives a group of given and a foreign extraction. There are loyal Americans but still have cultural and sentimental ties to the old country. A neighborhood doctor, working secretly for a foreign power, hypnotizes those of his patients who have ties favorable to his plans. Having done this, he would, of course, remove them all knowledge of their ever having been hypnotized. Next comes a one-month period of indoctrination under hypnosis by various means, including the offer of substantial rewards and educational processes designed to strengthen their ancestral loyalties, their cooperation is obtained. Estabrooks explains how individuals so controlled would have no conscious aversion to Americans and would continue to behave as good citizens. Subconsciously, however, they would be saboteurs and agents of the enemy. All right, you say. This sounds beautiful on paper, but what about the well-known psychologist principle that no one will do anything under hypnosis that he wouldn't do when he's awake? My experiments have shown this assumption is poppycock. It depends not so much on the attitude of the subject as the operator himself. In wartime, the motivation for murder under hypnosis doesn't have to be very strong. During World War I, a leading psychologist made a startling proposal to the Navy. He offered to take a submarine and steered by a captured U-boat captain placed under his hypnotic control through enemy minefields to attack the German fleet. Washington nixed this stratagem as too risky. First, because there was no disguised method by which the captain's mind could be outflanked. Second, because today's technique of day-by-day -day breaking down a mythical conflict's brainwashing was still unknown. The indirect pros to hypnotism would I believe, changed the Navy's answer today. Personally, I'm convinced that hypnosis is a bristling, dangerous armament, which makes it doubtably imperative to avoid the war of tomorrow. George Estabrooks may have greatly contributed to the U.S. government's interest in hypnosis. 
for during the years that followed, seeking ways to improve the mind and control it. Various government agencies, many of them with intelligence functions, secretly pursued research in hypnotic techniques. A number of related events during the 1940s demonstrated the extent of the government's interest in hypnosis. Beyond changing beliefs, they sought ways to motivate people to commit acts which they would not commit in a normal state. Dr. Bernard Guindes wrote in an amnesia experiment he undertook for the U.S. Army in the late 1940s. Quote, a soldier with only a grade school education was able to memorize an entire page of Shakespeare's Hamlet after listening to the passage seven times. Upon awakening, he could not recall any of the lines, and even more startling was the fact that he had no remembrance of the hypnotic experience. A week later, he was hypnotized again. In this state, he was able to repeat the entire page without a single error. In another experiment to test the validity of increased memory retention, five soldiers were hypnotized and masked and given a jumbled code consisting of 25 words without phonetic consistency. They were allowed 60 seconds to commit the list to memory. In the waking state, each man was asked to repeat the code. None of them could. One man hazily remembering having had some association with the code could not remember more than that. The other four soldiers were allowed to study the code consciously for another 60 seconds, but all denied previous acquaintance with it. During the rehypnotization, they were individually able to recall the exact content of the coded message. In 1947, J.G. Watkins induced criminal behavior and deeply hypnotized subjects during another army experiment. Watkins suggested a distorted view of reality to his subjects by inducing hallucinations that allowed them to avoid direct conflict with their own moral concepts. He carefully chose his suggestions to be in line with his subjects' pre-existing motivational structures and was so able to induce so-called antisocial behavior. Watkins took a normal, healthy army private, a young man whose tests indicated a most stable personality and put him in a deep trance. Through merely striking a superior officer in court-martial offense in the army, Watkins wanted to see if he could get his subject to strangle a high-ranking officer. After the subject was in deep in trance, Watkins told him that the officer sitting across from him was a Japanese soldier who was trying to kill him. He must kill or be killed, Watson suggested. Immediately, the private leapt ferociously at the officer and grabbed him by the throat. In his waking state, the private would have been against at all the thought of trying to strangle a superior officer, but are under hypnosis, believing the officer had a dangerous Japanese soldier, the young private had to be pulled off his superior by three husky assistants. The officer came within a hairbreadth of being strangled, as the young man was most persistent in his attempt to kill what he regarded as the enemy. Watkins repeated this experiment with other subjects. The second time, he used two officers who were good friends. One of them was given the hypnotic suggestion that the other was a Japanese soldier and that he must be killed or be killed. The man who had received the command not only made a powerful lunge at his friend, but as he did, he whipped out and opened a concealed jackknife, which neither the doctor, his assistants, nor his friend knew he had. Only the quick action of the one of the assistants who was a judo expert, preventing potentially a fatal stabbing. 
In both cases, reality was so distorted that the subjects took murderous and antisocial action. If they had accomplished their supposedly defensive acts, both men could have been convicted of murder, since the law did not recognize motivation through hypnosis as a fact. The courts, in all but few cases, had adopted the traditional scientific view that criminal behavior cannot be induced under hypnosis. That view still stands today. To test the premise, which is then widely held, that a normal person under hypnotic trance could not be made to divulge information which would be self-incriminating, Watkins conducted a number of experiments where a monetary bribe was offered to withhold information. Watkins discovered that, when placed in a trance, they spilled every time, either verbally or writing. The subject of one of these experiments was a woman who was serving in the military intelligence unit of the Women's Army Corps. Her commanding officer ordered her not to reveal a list of what were made to appear to be real military secrets. Under hypnosis, she spilled everything. Another experiment was discontinued when it was discovered that a research worker in the government arsenal was spilling vital and top-secret war information to the friendly army hypnotists who did not have need to know. He did this loud and clear while in trance before an audience of 200 military professionals. If the subject had been allowed to continue, the disclosures of the information would have resulted in a general court-martial, no matter how the doctor might have tried to persuade the intelligence headquarters that this was just a test. Much of the Army's experimentation with manipulation by hypnosis was inspired by reports of Wesley Raymond Wells, a doctor at Syracuse University. Wells' research, in turn, had been inspired by the fiction of the 1880s and 1890s, which described criminal acts as being induced by hypnosis. Wells was taken by the idea that the most striking feature in a hypnotist subject is his automatism. Although early experiments had elicited no immoral or criminal behavior from a subject under hypnosis, the results of experiments that asked subjects to resist various suggestions indicated to Wells that people might be more suggestible than was generally believed. In the late 1930s, Wells conducted a simple experiment with a student volunteer. He chose a subject who had stated that he expected that he would be below average in hypnotizability and who claimed that he could not be put into trance. Before inducing trance, Wells urged him to do his utmost to resist in every possible way, first going into the trance and then doing anything against his own moral code. When the student told Wells that he was ready to begin the contest, the doctor put his hand on the subject's chest, counted to seven, and found that the subject had already fallen into a deep trance. After testing the subject's muscle control and ability to obtain amnesia and hallucinations, Wells proceeded to suggest that the subject get up from his chair, go over to Wells' overcoat that was on the coat rack across the room, and then take a dollar from the right-hand pocket. Wells suggested that the subject see the coat as his own and take the dollar thinking that he had left it in the pocket. When the subject followed all of Wells' suggestions, he then told to put the dollar in his own breast pocket and return it to his chair. As he was about to sit, Wells said to him that when he sat in the chair, he would spend the dollar just as if it were his own. Afterwards, during the student's recall of the experiences, Wells found that everything had worked according to the hypnotic reprogram he had implanted. This was, of course, a clinical sort of test for amnesia. Whether his amnesia would have 
withstood the third degree methods of police or the lie detector methods of the psychological laboratory is another question. On the basis of my previous experiment study on post-hypnotic amnesia, I would state it is my opinion that hypnotically induced amnesia is the case of so good a subject would have withstood any possible test if added precautions had been taken in the hypnotic production of amnesia. Wells' report on this experiment, published in the Psychology Journal in 1941, brought a negative reaction from the scientific community. Milton Erickson was among the first to say that Wells' experiments were, at best, inconclusive. Erickson reported that after attempting to duplicate similar hypnotic inducements of crime with 50 subjects, he had failed. He concluded from his own investigations that hypnosis cannot be misused to induce hypnotic persons to commit actual and wrongful acts either against themselves or others. The so-called antisocial acts induced by Wells and others, Erickson maintained, were most likely motivated by factors other than hypnosis or suggestion. We know that it's possible, without recourse to hypno hypnosis, for one person to induce another to commit a wrong, a fact we may explain loosely as the influence of one personality upon another. To settle this question is difficult, since it involves three inseparable factors of unknown potentialities. Specifically, the hypnotist as a person, the subject as a person, and the hypnosis as such to say nothing of the significant influence upon the, those three both individually and collectively, of the, of the suggestion and the performance of a questionable act. But even Erickson conceded that the primitive being, the libido, which dwells in everyone, makes almost any crime possible. When a hallucinatory state has been induced and the subject thinks he or she is acting out of self-preservation, the primitive mind takes over and the killer instinct is unleashed. Milton Erickson's insights into human behavior were later used to develop, with the CIA watching over the scientists' shoulders, what is perhaps the 20th century's most important technology of empowerment or enslavement, a science known as neurolinguistic programming. In the late 1930s, psychologists began grappling with the problem of human will, as the theologians before them had done for centuries. Some maintain that will meant conscious volition. Others maintained that it meant nothing but the manifestation of the belief system, that is to say, the result of the earliest conditioned responses. There are examples of individuals who were conditioned since birth to behave one way, only later to consciously put effort into changing their behavior successfully. This would appear to argue that where there is will applied, there is a way achieved. Still, the area of will generally lies outside the limits of modern psychology. Modern experts are loath even to use the word will since it represents the most ill-defined dimension of human nature. Summing up a carefully constructed semantic argument, psychologists often say, a person cannot be made to do anything against his or will or accept basic moral precepts. That statement, taken at face value, is certainly true. A normal person would not wittingly kill a friend, but if he was made to hallucinate that his friend was an enemy and it was a kill-or-be-killed situation, he would initiate a natural response of to preserve his own life. In the process, he might even take the imagined enemy's life. After the hallucination passed, he would realize that he had killed his friend. 
This criminal act would be considered in one sense an act of will, but the real cause of the action would not be understood outside the hallucinated state. Only the killer's grief would remain to attest to his knowledge of what he did and that he really did not want to do it. Whether or not hypnosis can be used to deeply motivate people to commit antisocial acts, despite the call of their own conscience, is still open and questioned in academic circles. George Estabrooks had evidence that made him conclude that one in every five of the human race are highly suggestible, at least half are suggestible to a very considerable degree. And he warned, mere figures do not tell the story that one-fifth has a power far beyond its numbers, for this type of man, acting under direct suggestion, is no mere average person. He is a fanatic, with all that fanaticism may imply for good or evil. Can this prospective subject, this one in five individuals, be hypnotized against his will? The answer to this very vital question is yes, though we prefer to say without his consent instead of against his will. We do not need the subject's consent when we wish to hypnotize him, for we will use disguise techniques. Believing in Estabrook's logic, pragmatists in the government began to explore the possibilities of ways to change belief and motivate behavior. They arranged scores of contracts for research into hypnosis, behavior modification, conditioning, and virtually anything that held even a slim chance of being able to give them control over the individual mind and will. Meanwhile, foreign governments unfriendly to the United States were involved in similar psychological research, but the U.S. government's fear of losing superiority in this new and untested field ran away with it. Intelligence analysts believed mind control gap existed, and to close it, they immediately mobilized think tanks to develop a usable program of experimental research. For one such think tank, the RAND Corporation came a report entitled, Are the Common Form Countries Using Hypnosis Techniques to Elicit Confession in Public? Dated April 25, 1949, it helped set the stage for using national security as the rationale for researching to mind control to motivate criminal acts, both at home and abroad. The successful use of hypnosis, the report said, would represent a serious threat to democratic values in times of peace and war. In addition, it might contribute to the development of unconventional methods of warfare, which will be widely regarded as immoral. The results of unscientific research in the field under discussion would obviously lend themselves to offensive as well as defensive application and to abuse no less than use. It must be assumed that almost all of the scientific personnel in the field of hypnosis keenly aware of these social implications of their work and that they are interested in limiting the practice of hypnosis to therapeutic applications. That assumption proved to be untrue. The RAND report recommended that there, these moral and political implications of experimental research on hypnosis be explored as fully as possible prior to official encouragement or sponsorship of such research so as to establish the most effective safeguards against this unintended consequences. The RAND study dwelt at length upon Soviet experiments in hypnosis dating back to 1923. At the State Institute of Experimental Psychology in Moscow, the report stated, 
it was demonstrated that hypnosis could be used in inducing an innocent person to develop intense guilt feelings and to confess to a criminal or immoral act which he did not commit. In 1932, the experiments on hypnotically implanted crimes were reported in English translation by A.R. Luria, who at the time was a professor in the Academy of Communist Education. Quoting Luria, the report described how hypnosis was used as a device for producing emotional disturbances in order to control behavior. We suggested that the person under test, while in a sufficiently deep hypnotic state, a certain situation more often a disagreeable one in which he was playing a role irreconcilable with his habits and contrary to his behavior, we thus obtained an actual and rather sharply expressed acute effect. After awakening the person under test, we had a subject who was loaded with certain definite affective complexes which most certainly remained unknown to himself. Luria described an experiment with a 20-year-old female college student who was told under deep hypnosis that she was sitting in her home studying when a neighborhood child, a boy of six, came into the room. She was told that the child shouted when he came into the room. She asked him to stop, but he did not listen. The young woman was then told that she would get angry and forget herself. She would take a stick and beat the boy, first on the back and then on the head. The boy would cry out from the rooms on his head, but she would keep on beating him. She would then feel very ashamed and would be unable to understand how such things could happen, how she could beat up a child. Finally, she was told that she must try and forget the incident altogether. Luria explained that he had chosen this situation with a definite purpose. Since the hallucinated event was entirely unacceptable by the moral standards of the young woman's personality, it was natural that she would feel repentant. He reinforced her natural desire to forget by suggesting to her that she remove the memory of the event from her mind. In subsequent trances, the subject was questioned about the supposed beating. With great difficulty, she reconstructed the event, but shifted the emphasis on a several points so that the imagined event would conform more to her basic moral code. At first, she refused to remember that she had beaten the child. She then conceded that she had pulled his ears. Then, finally, she admitted that she had beaten him, but she maintained she had not beaten him with a stick. Luria said that this showed how unacceptable the situation was to her personality. The student said twice, My conscience has tortured me. Luria said this showed the effectiveness of the hypnotic suggestion. It may also have showed a sadistic streak in this experimenter. Of that experiment, Irving Janus, author of the Rand Report, observed, In this particular case, the implanted memory was initially referred to by the examiner as dream rather than a real event. But from the detailed reports of other investigators, this procedure does not appear to be necessary for eliciting a false confession. A hypnotized subject will often accept and confess to an implanted memory as a real event in his own past life. The Rand report suggests that this trick of hypnotic suggestion might be used on a defendant waiting trial. The defendant could be prepared in a series of hypnotic sessions to accept guilt about a criminal act he did not commit, and then, if placed in hypnotic trance while in the courtroom, the prosecutor's interrogation would elicit a false confession. Fearing the communist 
use of hypnosis. The RAND report warned that hypnosis, once accomplished, is hard to detect. Contrary to reports in the 19th century, the report said, A hypnotic subject is not blindly obedient, nor does he act like an autonomon when in his trance. Hypnotic suggestions are acted out and elaborated in a way that is consistent with the individual's habitual social behavior and his basic personality traits. The report stated that while often the hypnotized subject seems literal and humorless, he appears entirely unselfconscious, and very often he acts abstracted, inattentive, almost as if he were insulted against his surroundings. This is not always the case. A number of experienced hypnotists have been able to train their subjects to perform in such a way that observers could not tell the subject he was in trance or that he was acting under hypnotic suggestions. The RAND report outlined the following procedure that would elicit a false confession. First, make the subject feel guilty about some acts he had thought about or had actually carried out in the past. Second, make him feel guilty about having committed some crime of which he was actually innocent. The implanted guilt could compel the subject to confess when examined by a hypnotist or any other else designated by the hypnotist. Third, train the subject by means of post-hypnotic suggestion to go into trance whenever a simple signal was encountered. The subject would be trained to be given false confession in a normal, convincing manner so that observers would not be able to detect the trance state. To induce hypnosis in an unwilling subject, the report suggested any three of the possibilities, which were then well supported by research findings. As part of the medical examination, talk relaxation to the subject, thus disguising the hypnotic induction, for example, the person could be given a blood pressure test, told that he must relax completely in order to give an adequate test record, and then be given suggestions to go into sleep, which would result in a hypnotic trance. Induce hypnosis while the person is actually asleep from normal fatigue. This could be done by simply talking softly into a sleeper's ear. Use injections of drugs to induce hypnosis. The hypnotic drugs would relax the subject and put him into a twilight state where the subconscious mind is susceptible to suggestion. Subject who refused to resist the simple talking methods of hypnotic induction could be given a few grams of pelaritide or an intravenous injection of sodium pentothal or sodium amytal. The appropriate dosage of these drugs invariably induces a state of light hypnotic sleep. During the sleep, the subject could be given suggestions which could produce the characteristic deep hypnotic trance. While in the first drug-induced trance, the patient could be given post-hypnotic suggestions to the effect that he would be susceptible to hypnosis thereafter without the use of drugs. Subsequently, the subject could be allowed to practice carrying out post-hypnotic suggestions. He could then be re-hypnotized still without his conscious cooperation, but this time without the use of drugs. The report admitted that at the time of its writing, there was no certain knowledge of just how successful each of these three methods described might prove to be with individuals who are in their guard against being victimized by hostile authorities. The drug technique, suggested the report, 
would probably turn out to be the simplest and most efficient of the three, and so would be the most likely candidate for hypnotizing defendants against their will. Another important use of hypnosis for the government, the report said, would be the induction of amnesia. Once a deep hypnotic trance is achieved, it is possible to introduce the post-hypnotic amnesia so that a subject would not know they had been subjected to hypnosis, to drugs, or any other treatment. The report then turned out to be the problem of producing the deep hypnotic trance essential to post-hypnotic amnesia. It stated that, based on research reports of that time, in about 90% of unselected population it should be possible to produce the deepest somnambulistic type of trance. According to the numerous authorities, a light trance is sufficient to elicit a confession of actual misbehavior which might otherwise be withheld. But, for carrying out complete post-hypnotic amnesia, it is somnambulistic trance that is required. The RAND document expressed fear that Soviet investigators had found their other techniques, which could produce deep hypnosis in perhaps 90% or more of all individuals. Anticipating future advances, the report speculated on more efficient ways to develop greater depth in hypnotic trance. It suggested that a subject could be placed in trance many times each day until a sufficient depth of trance was achieved. It was thought that hypnotizing the subject and then awakening him several times in the same session might speed up the process. This process and this technique of successive and rapid trance induction would, it was hoped, make the subject easily susceptible to deep trance in a few days. To increase speed and depth of hypnosis, special uses of hypnotic drugs were also suggested. For example, a series of drug-induced trances, as against only in such treatment, might serve to develop the majority of cases into submodalities, or sympnomalites. Moreover, certain unique drug compounds may be specifically effective in inducing very deep states of hypnosis. Neurolinguistic programming practitioners later developed ways of reassessing any drug state, or any state at all for that matter, once it has been achieved. Neurolinguistic programming techniques added to that which is described above can exponentially amplify the effects. The RAND report continued. Conceivably, electroshock convulsions might be used as an adjunctive device to achieve somnambulism in a very high percentage of the cases. Many studies have shown that there is a temporary intellectual impairment to fuse amnesias and general weakness of the ego produced during the period when a series of electroshock convulsions is being administered. From my own and others' investigations of the psychological effects of such treatments, I would suspect that they might tend to reduce resistance to hypnotic suggestions. It is conceivable, therefore, that electroshock treatments might be used to weaken difficult cases in order to produce a hypnotic trance of great depth. In 1958, the Bureau of Social Science Research, a subcontractor to the Rand Corporation, issued a technical report on hypnosis to the Air Force that took up where the earlier Rand report had left off. Once again, a think tank was calling for action in the mind control race against the communists. The author of the Rand report, Seymour Fisher, wrote an introduction. To both the layperson and the behavior scientist, hypnosis has long been regarded as a potentially powerful instrument for controlling human behavior. 
Undoubtedly, the intelligence divisions of many countries have given serious thought to this potential and have done classified research in various areas of hypnosis. It is conceivable that these techniques could have been used and covered up so successfully that they might be impossible to recognize. Fisher outlined areas of future research where Americans could advance in the mind control race. He urged the governments to develop tests to determine who was and who was not a good hypnotic subject. He urged further research into pharmacology, suggesting that a number of drugs little known at the time might prove to be effective in inducing hypnosis. He predicted that some drugs would prove useful in reducing the amount of time required to induce complex hypnotic behavior and that others would be useful in reinforcing the lasting effects of hypnotically induced behavior control. He predicted that drugs would be developed which would permit far greater control of autonomic processes. Some drugs, he suggested, would be found to permit control over learning and perception as well. He also predicted that new drugs would be discovered which would be capable of inducing deep hypnosis in virtually any individual regardless of the degree of cooperativeness. All of these techniques involving drug-induced hypnosis and electroshock convulsions were eventually developed and used to reduce some of our own citizens to a zombie state in which they would blindly serve the government. Regardless of the Constitution and the laws which supposedly protect the individual against government coercion, zombies were covertly created to do the government's more unsavory bidding. Such zombies asked no questions about their illegality or their assignments. Often their assignments were never consciously known, and if they were ever questioned about their own actions, amnesia protected them from their self-incrimination. What had started out as a race against the communists slowly turned into a war against Americans. It was waged by a cryptocracy that had taken over the country once the electric had been lulled into a hypnotic trance by the techniques it had developed to win the mind control race against the communist boogeyman. In fact, Nobel Prize winning mathematician John Nash, upon whose story the Academy Award winning film A Beautiful Mind was based, might have been a target of this applied technology. He was certainly in the right place at the wrong time, and he did apparently go against his handlers at the CIA. At Princeton, the New Jersey Psychiatric Research Institute was famous for its studies of schizophrenia in the days Nash was there. It was also secretly funded by CIA under one of its many mind control projects with exotic code names. After the electroshock treatments were administered, Dr. Nash couldn't remember a thing. It took years for his genius mathematical abilities to return. Nash's mathematical theorems extended Adam Smith's basic economic theorems and produced the successful win-win strategies employed today in high-level diplomatic negotiations. Illustration Hypnotized in front of an audience in the 1940s, volunteer Pam Craig enters icy water in a demonstration of the power of hypnosis to fool the mind on the deepest levels. Miss Craig was programmed to believe she was entering a hot tub. Illustration number two. In a hypnosis test circa 1940, the enlisted man with his head back is in a trance, holding out his hand at the command of the hypnotist, Ralph Slater, a match is put up to his fingers. While the flesh sizzled, 
no blisters were formed due to the suggestions of the hypnotist. Years later, CIA agent G. Gordon Liddy would demonstrate his trancing ability by holding his hand over a flame. 